And let's pray before we read that. Father, thank you for this time that we can come and gather together under your word. We pray that you'll speak to us as we read. Amen. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who blot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people, from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a sheepfold, like a flock in its pasture. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Father, thank you for this word. Help us to understand it as we look at it this evening. Amen. If you actively hold a faith that is more than an expression of cultural identity, you're deemed to be far worse than eccentric. You're dangerous. You're offensive. These words were prepared by Tim Farron for an address to the Theos think tank on his resignation as leader of the Liberal Democrats last June. And the reason he gave for his resignation caused quite a stir. Um, you can hear it in the defensiveness of these headlines that came out in the aftermath. The trial of Timothy the martyr is over, but has Farron been treated unfairly? From the Guardian. Uh, Tim Farron's view of his religion was the problem, not how other people saw it. From the Independent. Um, Tim Farron is wrong about liberalism. From the Spectator. Tim Farron is so wrong. Christianity and progressive politics do go together. From the Guardian. And whatever we may think about how Farron handled his faith and the things that he did and didn't say, his resignation has raised a question. Is it okay to believe and speak the words of the Bible in public in 21st century UK? Indeed, what is it okay for a Christian to say? And this strikes me as a very similar dilemma to the one that's handled here in Micah 2. If Tim Farron's question was, what is it okay for a Christian to say as the leader of a progressive liberal party in 2017? 
Then Micah's question to his audience of the southern and northern kingdoms of Israel, and in fact to all the nations listening, as Dave pointed out in chapter 1, verse 2 last week. Uh, Micah's question then, what is it okay for a prophet, indeed for God, to say to an idolatrous kingdom in the 8th century BC? And Micah's question for us, what is it okay for God to say to a progressive, liberal, tolerant, open-minded and ever-changing Oxford? in 2018 what is it okay for God to say about sin about judgment about other religions about hell about God's anger what is it okay for God to say about social, cultural issues homosexuality transgender issues Sexism, consumerism, terrorism. And what is it okay for Christians to say on God's behalf? Is there a difference between what Christians are allowed to think and what they're allowed to say? Are there some things that they shouldn't even think? Uh, To recap Dave's introduction to the book of Micah briefly from last week. um, We know that Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. It was alive and preaching in the um, small border town of Moresheth that tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, in the late 8th, 8th century BC uh, and before the Assyrian invasion of 701 BC uh, during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Um, and we know that his message was primarily one of judgment. Uh, God will judge your sin, Judah, so repent. Um, and he probably ministered over a 35 or so year period covering the reigns of those three kings. And what we have now as the book of Micah is a collection of, sort of many separate oracles or speeches he would have given those years that were kind of compiled into one text, uh, probably within 100 years or so of his death, because uh, we know because he's um, referenced in Jeremiah chapter 26, so that we know that quite quickly sort of his, his, his speech, speaking, was quite well known uh, within the community of God's people. Um, and we don't hear it with our English ears, but to a Hebrew audience, um, the meaning of the book is written all over it, because Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. Yahweh was the name that God revealed to Moses. Uh, it's always written in the capitalised letter Lord in our Bibles, back in Exodus. <coughs> and so in this book, God dramatically intervenes in the lives of his people to show them who he is. Who is like Yahweh? Who is your God, Israel? What kind of God is he? And what does that mean for the people who claim to follow him? And as Dave said last week, Micah's pretty punchy. And he's only got seven chapters, so he doesn't mince his words. And after a very brief introduction in verse 1 and a kind of listen-up statement in verse 2 of chapter 1, uh, chapter 1 gives us a very grim, sobering picture of a God who's angry, a God who's on his way here, a God who's coming to judge. And remember all the word plays in the place names that Dave told us about and the punishments that those places would receive. Uh, it, it's lost on us with our Englishes, but the people of Dust Town are told to roll in the dust in verse 10 of chapter 1. The residents of Marchville will not march. Uh, Those in Beautyburg, in verse 11, will leave in shameful nakedness. Why? Well, chapter 7 of verse 1, idolatry. All her idols will be broken to pieces. God's people are cheating on him, two-timing him, claiming to worship him, but keeping their high places, in chapter 5, to the other nation's gods at the same time. 
Chapter 2 then throws a different angle on their sin. It's as if we're kind of helicoptered into their society and we get to see their sin from the inside uh, and what they say about their sin as well. And we see quite how just God is going to be in this chapter, giving to his people exactly what they deserve, treating them exactly as they have treated others. And then we get just at the end of chapter 2, that first glimmer of hope post-judgment in the last two verses. Uh, So first of all, a lament over the coveting, thieving, ruling class in verses 1 to 5. So in the first chunk, the first of the three oracles in this chapter, uh, Micah rebukes the powerful in Israel for coveting and stealing land and possessions from the poor. And he tells them that God will punish them by removing the land from them and removing them from his people. So the opening words of the oracle put us in the mood of a lament, starting with woe in verse 1. To whom? Or to members of God's own people, to those who plan evil by night and carry it out by day in verse 1. Theft seems to be the key evil that Micah has in mind here. Theft of fields, houses in verse 2. Rather than seeking to bless one another, a subset in Judah society seems to have turned on each other. And the crime is described again and again and again in quite strong terms. This isn't the occasional relocating of an item of stationery from work. Just look at the choice of nouns, iniquity in verse 1 and evil, and then the verbs, seize, take, defraud, rob in verse 2. Again and again, Micah's rubbing this image into our field of vision of one group of God's people snatching things out of the hands of another group of God's people, like a three-second meme playing on repeat. And what makes it worse is that these are not spontaneous crimes. There's premeditation here. These leaders lie in bed at night, planning tomorrow's thefts, verse 1 tells us. As they drift off to sleep, they plot and dream of what they can get, who from, and how. And then at 6.45, the alarm goes off the next morning, and they head straight out to do their dirty work. And it's all done and dusted by the time they get in from work and settle down on the sofa in their slippers, to watch something on Netflix. Another field in their inventory. Another investment for their accountant to manage. In the Hebrew, uh, lines 2 and 4 rhyme with each other. And lines 5 and 6 rhyme. And lines 7 and 8 rhyme. And uh, one of the commentators, Stephen Denster, suggests it's a bit like the predictability of the patterns and the rhymes here. Kind of show us how sort of smoothly oiled the machine of sin here is. This is almost as if it sort of runs on automatic pilot. It's so well set up, this system. And there are no references to sort of violence or, or other forms of abuse here. Most commentators think that what's happening here is a sort of legitimised, socially acceptable violence against the poor within their society. A victim would be selected. Loans would be called in. The victim would be unable to pay. And then their estate would be seized. All perfectly legal, perfectly above board. It would go through the courts without a problem. You might want to look up a 1 Kings chapter 21 at home tonight uh, for an example where King Ahab steals uh, Naboth's vineyard. And what makes this theft even more odious uh, than its dire economic consequences are its theological implications. Not only would the poor farmer or widow be left without a roof over their heads and reliant on charity or even forced into slavery to support themselves and their families, but they'd also lose their place amongst God's people. Each tribe had been allotted a section of the land in Joshua when they entered Canaan. 
And each family was then given a plot within that area. And that, that was to be their land, to be passed down from generation to generation, their gift from God, their little place in God's wonderful inheritance. And to lose that, they meant to lose their place in God's people. And to lose it not just for themselves, but for their future generations too. To be homeless, without a base. But before we move on, let's consider for a moment why they're acting like this. I mean, how, how could they be so cruel? Well, I think the start of verse 2 is the key. They covet fields and seize them. They steal because they covet. And what is coveting? It's uh, not a commonly used word in society today. The Oxford English Dictionary defines it as yearning to possess something, especially something belonging to another. They see what others have, and they want it. And as they dwell on their desire, that want turns into a craving. And they decide they should have it, so they plot to take it. And finally, they enact their plan and they steal it. They see, they want, they crave, they plot, they take. And what's noticeable is that it's not the have-nots taken from the haves here, Robin Hood style. It's the other way around. It's the wealthiest, the most powerful, yanking the little that the poorest have out of their hands. And there's one more motivation I'm at the end of verse 1. Um, because it's in their power to do it. It's in the power of their hand, the ESV says. Why do they steal? Because they can. Because they have the power. Because they can do whatever they want. So why not? Why not build up their retirement nest eggs? More literally in the Hebrew, it says, for their hand is a God. They worship their own strength. They're captivated by their own power and abilities. Chatting this through with a friend last weekend, I was struck by quite how closely it seems to link to some of the controversies we've seen in the media over the past few weeks and months. Powerful men across numerous industries, worshipping their own strength, marvelling at what they can get away with, thinking themselves untouchable, looking around to see what they want from the less powerful around them and taking it, with little or no thought from their victims. Whether it's Harvey Weinstein of Miramax demanding sexual acts from budding actresses, or uh, Roland van Hauermeyeren using his Oxfam villa in Haiti to sleep with Haitian prostitutes he's supposed to be helping, or Brendan Cox of Save the World propositioning young colleagues in the early hours of the morning. A ruling class that covets and steals without a care for the victims they're supposed to be partnering with. But just as so many of these men have been facing their comeuppance, so too will God's people, says Micah. For they are not the only ones who make plans, says Micah in verse 3. God is planning too. And just like them, he is planning bad things on people. Verse 3. Therefore, the Lord says, I'm planning disaster against this people. And God will judge them exactly as their deeds deserve. Their pride, in verse 1, will turn into shame, in verse 3. You will no longer walk proudly. As they have oppressed, they will be oppressed, in verse 4. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you. Just as they took land from others, land will be taken from them, in verse 5. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Sorry, verse 4, that was. In the shrieks of their victims, Dempster, the commentator, writes, the oppressors will hear their own future cries. <coughs> and then in verse 5, Michael jolts out of poetry and into prose to hammer the final nail in their coffins. 
who will die in this lament, this funeral march. The ruling class of Judah will die spiritually. They'll be kicked out of God's land and kicked out of his people. They'll become trespassers in God's kingdom. The bosses and bullies of Israel's courts will find themselves excluded from the court of the Lord with no one willing to speak on their behalf. God will judge them exactly as their deeds deserve. And this should make us shudder in our seats. But how does this apply to us? Imagine that we spend most of our energies planning how we can exploit the weak in our society. There were no Harvey Weinsteins sat among us this evening, most likely. Well, I think where this pierces us, me at least, is in the rebuke against coveting. I mean, it's a word that we barely use in society today. Dying out, perhaps, because it's no longer considered relevant. No longer particularly considered wrong. In wanting what other people have, we all do it. All the time. Everybody does. It seems a bit out of place at the end of the Ten Commandments. It's a far cry from murder, theft, adultery, lying. We're sort of desensitised to coveting. Vaccinated against its wickedness. And so often we simply don't even notice that it's there. And yet it is all around us. Everything is up for sale. Wrote Naomi Klein in No Logo in 1999. We're obsessed with our, as a society with the monetary value of what we possess and how we can make, find and earn more money. Whether it's selling old home furnishings on eBay, renting out empty rooms, parking spakes, unused bicycles, or making money online doing surveys, writing reviews, YouTube videos. We're endlessly finding new commodities to make money from. Houses, Tim Keller points out in Generous Justice, are now primarily defined not by their suitability as a place of shelter or their proximity to places of employment or leisure or education or retail, but by their financial worth. That's what matters most in a house today. And this mindset isn't just accepted, but it's encouraged in secular society. We're forever told to want more, to get more, to buy more, to strive for more. You need only look up a product or a holiday online once and then it will feature as an advert lurking in the corner or down the side of almost every web page you visit for weeks to come. Have you not bought it yet? Come on, get it now. It's so hard in our society today to fight the sin of coveting. And so often we don't even try because we don't notice we're doing it. We're desensitised to when interest in another's position, possession slips into desire for it. The second glance at the person sitting next to you at church's uh, phone. Being slightly too impressed with your fellow home group members' home decor. That one car that you can't help just always noticing whether it is or isn't there when you come home at the end of the day. The colleague's holiday photos you spend probably a little bit too long admiring on Instagram. And we don't notice when the desire becomes a craving. A quiet, calm, controlled obsession. We fail to spot how often the time between when your head hits the bellow and you drift off to sleep is spent considering when it's the right time to remortgage and which fixed term would give you the best repayment rate so that you could save for that three-bedroomed house in a few years' time. We fail to acknowledge that the three hours after your spouse went to bed you, that you've spent on the iPad researching whether it would be better to fly from Gatwick or Luton or Stansted for the Crete holiday that your sister came home raving about six months ago. And of course, we're called to be good stewards and to use our money wisely and to think carefully about how we use our money. 
But it's when our, the desire to use our God-given resources sensibly slips into a desire to just get as much as we can from what we have that we're in trouble. What we think about in our beds at night reveals what's on our hearts, says Micah. And Micah too shows us that it will impact, indeed take over, how we live our lives in public. So watch out. Uh, moving on now to the second oracle. A debate with the judgment-denying prophets, verses 6 to 11. Uh, in the face of prophets who say judgment should not be prophesied because it will not happen, Micah offers a fierce rebuke, giving further examples of the evil in Israel and sarcastically describing the prophesying the Israelites would prefer to hear. So this second oracle, this second little speech, um, is what's known as a disputation, a debate essentially between two groups. In the blue corner we have Micah, and in the red corner we seem to have most of the other prophets in Moresheth at the time. Um, and in this section here, Micah kind of quotes their arguments to then counterattack them. Uh, I think it would be fair to say, looking at verse 6, uh, that Micah's preaching in verses 1 to 5 and chapter 1 has not been very well received. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Don't preach, they preach. It's almost funny. Stop talking, Micah. Don't say this stuff, Micah. Why not? Well, there seem to be two reasons. First, this message is wrong. You're wrong, Micah. Verse 6, disgrace will not overtake us. These prophets argue that God will not, in fact cannot, judge his own people. And they argue with their Bibles in their hands, referencing, referencing texts like Exodus 34, verse 6, that great, great revelation of God, of his identity to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Passages like Genesis 12, verse 3, God's promise to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And the prophecies of Balaam in Numbers 23 to 24, God brought them out of Egypt, the strength of a wild ox, like a lion they crouch and lie down, like a lioness who dares to rouse them. Why, their argument goes, having invested so much in this people, having rescued them from Egypt, set them up in this land, defeated all their, God, all their enemies, why would God punish them? I mean, he'd be shooting himself in the foot, ruining his great mission, breaking his own promises, making a laughing stock of himself. And how could he possibly want to curse his very own people, his precious flock? What kind of a father would call down curses upon his own children? This message is wrong, Micah, they say. And secondly, this message is repulsive. No one wants to hear this, Micah. This isn't the sort of stuff that we'll talk about in public, Micah. Some things should just be kept hidden. No one wants to hear a nasty, vindictive message. No one will listen to a message like this. If you want to have an audience, Micah, if you want to be heard, you're going to have to find something a little more palatable to say. Because this message... Is repulsive. And it's with a pretty big uh, dollop of sarcasm that a little bit further down in verse 11, Micah suggests what kind of a prophet or prophecy this people might prefer to listen to. If a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. When uh, preaching on this passage at St. Helen's Bishopsgate last year, Charlie Scarina hit the nail on the head, I think, of what kind of preacher this group would like. Jack from Father Ted, if you know it. Uh, famed for his decrepit, foul-mouthed, ill-tempered nature, his obsession with drink, and his utter failure to communicate in a coherent manner, relying mostly on the term feck to communicate his feelings. What kind of message does this people want? The message of Father Jack. Have another drink. 
What do they want God to say to them? What message would they be happy to listen to? Have another drink. But of course we know, and Michael will go on to outline later on, that these prophets are proclaiming only half the message. Yes, God is compassionate and slow to anger, he says in Exodus 34 verse 6. But in Exodus 34 verse 7, he goes on to say, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Similarly, you can look them up later, Genesis 18 verse 9, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. God loves to bless, save, rescue and forgive. But he will not leave sin unpunished forever. And this means there is no free pass for Israel. License to sin for God's people. It reminds me a little of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. After he's outlined the wonderful doctrine of a righteousness by faith apart from the law. And he says in chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may be increased? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live by it any longer? Our Father will not tolerate willful, repeated, intentional sin in the lives of those who claim to follow him. And just in case we need any more convincing of God's rightness to judge, Micah details the Israelites' leaders' covetousness and greed in even grosser terms in verses 8 and 9. They strip clothes off innocent people, a fine disgrace taking the very clothes off people's bodies in verse 8. And it's women, or widows perhaps, who these people are driving out of their homes and whose children's futures they are destroying. And then finally in verse 10, Micah sort of erupts in fury. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place. Like an angry farmer with a shotgun. Get away, get out of here. Get out of my sight, trespassers. A string of expletives as he cocks his shotgun to make his feelings clear against these people who do not want. Let no one say that Micah's preaching was academic. Again, I think this applies just as much to Oxford in 2018 as it did to Judah in 735 or so BC. Because there's been a huge resurgence over the past decade or two in the heresy of Marcionism. That we've got this sort of Old Testament God of wrath and this New Testament Jesus of love and forgiveness and that they contradict each other, they're pitted against each other. And that the New Testament Jesus of unforgiveness needs to supersede the Old Testament God of wrath. Christian authors like Rob Bell saying that Jesus' message of love that our world so desperately needs to hear has been subverted by a misguided and toxic narrative of torment and, hell, uh, torment and punishment and hell, he writes in his book Love Wins. Or the uh, terming of God's appeasing of his wrath as um, cosmic child abuse, Steve Chalk wrote in The Lost Message of Jesus. There's this powerful and pervasive narrative from outside Christianity, but also from within, that the angry old miser God of the Old Testament needs to be left behind in favour of God the friend, the counsellor, the comforter, the lover of everything and all, the acceptor of everything and all, who fit neatly into a 2018 society. But again, where does the rubber hit the road for us personally? We're most of us probably sort of well-churched enough that we know which theologians are, are wolves in sheep's clothing. We know which so-called churches don't teach the gospel. And if we don't, we know, who to, we know who to ask. Perhaps where we are more susceptible is to the sort of constant subversive pressure to water down our message and indeed our beliefs in the face of stern secular disapproval. The pressure Tim Farron felt all too keenly. The pressure to just smooth out our message, soften the corners 
make it a little bit more user-friendly. Give our God a bit of a makeover to help him blend in with the crowd a bit better. So let me see now. And I'll be on my knees myself tonight asking myself the same questions. Do you believe that God hates, really hates sin? Or do you believe that he hates your sin and the sin of those you know and love? And do you think that he will punish it? And do you feel like that is okay? Pray that God will strengthen your convictions and help you believe what the Bible teaches us. And does your life match what you believe? Does the way you think, feel and act day to day reflect the doctrines you signed up to? If you're to ask friends, colleagues, family members what they think you believe, what would they say? Would they be surprised to learn that you think there's real and that people will go there? Would they know that you think that trust in Jesus is the only way to heaven? No other religion, no other belief system? Does your life and message match your doctrine? Or do you keep low down, trying to live as similarly as you can to the non-Christians around you for fear of their disapproval? And finally, our third point. A vision of the shepherding who will break out. Verses 12 to 13. Micah's final and shortest oracle in chapter 2 paints a picture of a shepherd king who will gather the remnant of God's people and lead them out of exile. After a pretty heavy 26 verses of judgment, we end chapter 2 with a glimmer of hope, a light at the end of the tunnel. God's people will be banished from God's land and from God's presence, but not forever. For God will gather his people together again. A remnant of This use of the term remnant shows us that we're jumping into the future here, post-exile to Babylon. And once again, his people are described uh, like sheep, his flock, in verse 12, gathered by their shepherd. And God is back on personal terms with people, addressing them as you, in verse 12. And this will be no small flock. The word translated as throng at the end of verse 12 in our NIVs um, indicates both number and noise. This is going to be a huge, noisy, deafening rabble of a people. And once they're gathered, this new leader will then break open the way in verse 13. What a glorious picture of strength and power this is. Like Samson breaking out of his chains, the leader will break open the gates that are trapping his people. With an iron fist, he will smash open the barriers, oppressing his people. The ruling class of Judah thought they were all powerful. They thought their hands were God. But here is one with real strength. And once he's been opened the way, he'll pass through before them and lead them out in verse 13. He'll lead his army victoriously out from under the gaze of the incredulous, defeated captors. Just imagine the waving arms, the cheering, the shouts for joy, the dancing, as his people follow him out. What a victory march this will be. And who is this leader? Verse 13, their king, the Lord. Surely this is pointing to Jesus, the liberator, the shepherd king the one who broke out of his own team. 
And while, yes, it, it points to the return from exile in Babylon that Ezra wrote about, but surely it points even more to the new kingdom that Jesus will one day lead his people into when he's defeated death and sin and Satan once and for all. The shepherd king will gather his people from exile across the world and lead them into the new home he has prepared for them. And there's not a shadow of doubt in Micah's mind that this is what the future holds. He writes with a prophetic perfect tense, it's called, as if it's already happened. How can he be so sure? Well, because the work is all God's. All the remnant need to do is stay alive. It is God who will break out and lead them out. And so there is hope. But it's not to be found in changing who God is or changing his message or in pretending that he doesn't mind about sin and he won't judge it. Restyling God or dampening down his message will bring only misery, confusion and greater corruption. Our hope is in the God who judges, but in the God who also provided a means for us to escape that judgment. A shepherd king who came once to lay down his life for his people and will come again to lead his people victoriously out of exile. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand and to feel how seriously you take sin. Help us not to listen to those who would uh, want to change uh, the, what the Bible tells us about you, who you are, what you're like, and what you will do. Help us to hold firm to the Bible's teaching and to cling on to the hope of a rescue from exile through the blood of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.